What's up? You are now listening to Americanized, a storytelling podcast where you'll hear from eclectic first and second generation Americans share their stories and real life experiences as children of immigrants. Welcome back to another episode of Americanized. I'm your host, Rosin Claru, and in this episode, I sit and chat with Rudy Sallow. Rudy Sallow is a man of many identities, with one being a first-generation Arab-American who grew up in Orange County, California in the era of the Gulf War. He shares his experience of living in this anti-Arab climate and his evolution of taking pride in his heritage as he grew up. Rudy also speaks on the significance of Arab-American representation in the media as he grew up with quote-unquote no Arab-American heroes. Stay tuned to hear his story. Thank you for being on the show. Rudy, could you share a bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and where you're from? Yes, thank you very much for the opportunity to come onto the show. I'm I'm honored. I know we've been communicating for a couple of months about this opportunity, so I'm very excited. So I'm 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 Rudy Sallow, and I am in I'm many things. I guess uh, you know, for purposes of this show, why why that might be relevant is even though you probably can't tell from my name, um, and there's some interesting facts about that. Um, Actually, my name is Rudy Saliba Salo. My father's name is Saliba, and Saliba means uh, the cross in Arabic and in Aramaic. I'm, I'm actually an Arab American. Um, I was born in downtown Los Angeles in nine, May 1977, and my parents immigrated here from Jordan. My father came in the 60s. My mother came in the early 70s. And so I'm a first-generation uh, Arab American, and I came of age during the 1980s and the 1990s, which had profound impacts on me. Um, growing up during that time, which we'll, we'll talk about during the show. I am, um, I'm a lawyer by day. I, I'm a partner in the law firm of Nixon Peabody, which actually is headquartered in, in Boston. And I've been a lawyer for 19 years now. Uh, I graduated from Georgetown in, in 2003. I work in the area of infrastructure finance. And, and so I, I talk incessantly about how important infrastructure is to our society and how complicated financing infrastructure is and what goes the in the ins and outs of that. I've, I've been doing infrastructure finance now for 16 years of my career. So I've always worked with local government. And um, what does that actually mean? What does infrastructure finance mean? That means I actually work on roads, schools, colleges, bridges, hospitals, museums, sports stadiums throughout the entire country. I, I help work uh, the financings of those. So uh, pretty much most of the things that are not owned directly by a corporation are financed by some kind of government or nonprofit uh, entity, and I, and I work on those. So I get a lot out of my job. Like I, I feel like I give back to to society, which is very very important. I am also the um, vice president of the Arab American Lawyers of Southern California, which is a, a Arab American lawyer organization based out of based out of Southern California, and I, I teach. Uh, I'm a I'm a 
I'm an adjunct professor at Chapman University. I teach uh, um, the, the foundations of transactional law, which is that's what I do when you do infrastructure finance. Uh, that means I'm not going to court. I'm actually just doing contracts and documents. And so I, I teach a course uh, every spring to second year law students about what's it really like to be a deal lawyer. I'm a podcaster. Uh, I'm a co-host of a podcast called Good is in the Details, which was founded by a um, high school friend of mine. Um, she's a philosophy professor at Cal Poly um, University here in California. And it's a, it's a philosophy and law podcast, um, most, m- mostly philosophy and, and actually um, you know, we talk, we talk a lot about, um, social media and, and, and a lot of like, you know, relevant topics and how to apply philosophy to live a better life. And there's some legal components to it. Uh, I'm, I, I'm also an actor, um, or, uh, um, trying to be an actor. I mean, I've, I've done a, um, a few roles here and there and, um, was recently, was recently in this one short film called Curtain Call where I, where I won an award for it. And gosh, what else? Um, I, I write for Forbes.com. I'm a transportation correspondent where I talk a lot about transportation and transit and, and infrastructure. And yeah, I'm, all, I'm also a screenwriter. I've, um, I've been writing uh, screenplays now for a number of years. The first one that I ever wrote was a film called White Like Me, which was semi-autobiographical film about a kid coming of age in the 80s and 90s in, in Orange County, California, which if you know anything about Orange County, California, if you've ever heard of Huntington Beach, there was a large uh, skinhead contingent um, in, the, in the 1990s around the punk rock scene. And, and I was, you know, around during that area and uh, era and saw a lot of crazy things. Um, it was good. There was, it, was, it was a great time to, to, to come of age still. Uh, some of the bands that you can go see for like five bucks were like No Doubt and Sublime. And it was a wonderful time. The music was fantastic, but there was this white supremacist element that you always have to watch out for whenever you're at a, a punk rock show. I'm, I'm very passionate about punk rock. If it wasn't punk rock, I probably would have never become a lawyer. Really taught me how to think about politics and inequities and and it really shaped my life. So yeah, I'm sorry. I just kind of like went on a kind of, I kind of rambled on there. I know there was a lot there to unpack, but that's who I am. There's, 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 a, there's, there's a lot there because I do feel like there's a lot to me. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely are a jack of all trades. I'm also a father. I have I have oh. two children, um, a three year old, three and a half year old, and a five year old. My wife's a, my wife's a surgeon, and so we have you know this whole like lawyer doctor family as well. I, oh. I I often forget to mention that, and people always remind me. They're like, "Hey, you're also a dad. Don't forget that. You know your family." I'm like, "Oh my god, of course, my family's the most important thing." So just wanted to raise that. Sorry. That's funny. Yeah, a lot going on in your life. It sounds like, and I'm interested how you connected punk rock with law. It's actually not that unusual. There, there are a number of um, uh, of former punk rockers who, uh, like real superstars, that that either went into law or some kind of finance. Like for example, there's this guy, this guy uh, Joe Escalante from the Vandals, uh, which was a big band here and in, in based in Orange County and, and Long Beach uh, back in the 80s and 90s. He actually became a lawyer as well, and and now he's in radio and he's you know, I don't think he really practices law, but there is this element to, uh, there's a political element to punk rock. If you go back and you listen to some of the bands that came out in the, in, in the late seventies and the early eighties, uh, in particular, Black Flag, uh, Bad Brains, Dead Kennedys, huge, huge, huge uh, influence on me. That There was this whole like political aspect of punk rock that where they, where they were the ones that would talk about, you know, inequities and they would, they, they, they were, 
most of them were anti-Nazis, yet there was this Nazi uh, white nationalist element to a whole other aspect of punk rock, and they would often battle uh, together. And so but they also talked about a lot about the problems of war, the problems of, 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 of being poor, um, race relations. I mean, it's, it's pretty it's pretty incredible how how. I don't know if I mentioned Bad Brains, but they're also a band that that was critical. Um, if you really listen to the early '80s the punk rock, uh, the the political those political bands, and you're listening to what they're saying, it's great. Because if you're if you're an angry 16 year old kid, which quite honestly I was, and there's there's a whole bunch of reasons behind that. Um, there, punk rock basically said, "Hey, it's okay to be angry uh, if you're angry about the right things. If you're if you're angry about." you know, people mistreating you or people mistreating others because of their race or because of their sexuality or because of that stuff, that's okay to be angry. And it's okay to fight back about that. And that, that was kind of what I kind of got out of punk rock. It, it kind of, it kind of soothed me to be like, okay, it's okay that I'm, it's okay that I'm bothered by the fact that I had this kind of rougher uh, uh, upbringing uh, growing up Arab American in the 1980s and the 1990s. Cause you know, back then they're, I mean, you turn on the news and it, it was just anything having to do with being an Arab was terrorism, 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 you know, hijacking this, hijacking that. There were no Arab American heroes in the eight, 1980s and the 1990s. I mean, hell, even into the 2000s. I mean, you have the 9-11. You know, it's only recently within like the last couple of years where you're finally starting to see people like Rami Youssef uh, have his show and... um you know, Rami Malek winning the best Oscar. And you're really starting to see these Arab Americans, you know, coming up, and like trying to show the world that, Hey, like we're normal people too. I didn't have that growth. And there, and there weren't a lot of other Arab Americans other than family members around me. So it wasn't like I can really relate to any of them and talk to them about it. So I always, I, I always kind of grew up around, um, it was really close to uh, people of other races, uh, Asian Americans. I've got Asian Americans in my family. I have Latinos in my family, and uh, you just kind of felt like a kinship because they kind of, you know, felt that they were the other as well. Um, and so, punk rock uh, just taught me how to think uh, about about the, the law and about the state of the world and mm-hmm. what kind of an impact I want to have on that. And if it wasn't for it, I really don't think I'd be where I'm at today. Wow, that's really fascinating. Because they, in those songs, I imagine they would speak truth and then it's something you could relate to and then figure out what you want to do about what you now know and how you relate to that with your personal experiences and how to make an impact on the world or in locally, like through law. So that's, that's really cool. Absolutely. Definitely made me want to work in an area of the law that would have an impact, a positive impact on as many people as humanly possible. And quite honestly, like that's what infrastructure finance is all about. I mean, you need roads to get to work. You need schools to, to teach people. You need hospitals to fix the sick people. Um, you need bridges. You need tunnels. You need airports. You need universities. You need sports stadiums. You need, I mean, you need all of these things to have like an, an enriched environment for society and, and for people to you know come together. And that's what we do. I, I help build that stuff. I help solve the problems. I help figure out you know the complicated the, because. Governments are constrained in the way that they can borrow. They're not like corporations. Uh, so you have to like really know the law and you, and you also really need to know finance and you really need to know just so many different areas of it. But at the end of the day, the, the end result of, of what you're building or if you're saving money for the government, it really has an impact on society. So I feel great about what I do. 
And if there's anybody, there's any listeners out there that are thinking about pursuing a career in law, but they want, you know, to have a positive impact on people and, and you know, and, and, and make a, a good living at the same time, I highly recommend doing something in infrastructure finance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's brilliant. That makes me think of my friend. She's studying pre-law and she's also first generation. And like, I don't know what direction she's going to go in, but that I'll have to tell her about infrastructure law. I'm sure she knows about it, but I don't, I didn't know the details of it. So I, I applaud you for that. You're like making an impact on the world. You know, and it, it's interesting too. There, there's, there's a, there's an element of my, of my upbringing that had a major, major impact on, on besides punk rock. There's a, there's an element of, of my upbringing that, that led me into infrastructure and being passionate about transportation. Mm-hmm. My grandmother um, immigrated here in the early 1970s after, you know, my parents came here. She didn't have a driver's license where, where in Jordan, um, you know, a lot, a lot of back then, a lot of women didn't drive. They didn't need to, you know, small, small little areas. All the families used to live in the apartment buildings and the church was nearby and they would just mm-hmm. rely upon people to get around. So when she immigrated here, she didn't get a driver's license. She was, she was old. She was too old and she didn't know English. She learned English by watching the prices right and the young and the restless. So I pretty much grew up watching the prices right and the young and the restless. Right. But what she did do was she taught herself how to get around on a bus hmm. in that. And this is in Orange County, which, you know, is not that great of an area for public transportation, but she always instilled in me because she lived with us and she you practically raised, raised me and my sister. She always instilled in my sister and me, you don't need a car. You can get around by using public transportation. You, you know, here, let me, let me show you. Here's the bus schedule here. Watch, look where we can go. And it was amazing. We went all over the place uh, by using a bus and, and she taught me how to use a bus. And then I, I grew up taking the bus down to hunting beach, which, you know, to go to the beach and do all of those activities that I was doing. And, and that had a huge impact on me, huge, huge, huge impact on me. And, and I talk a lot about that in my Forbes.com articles about how, Car dependency is a major problem here in the United States. Um, it, it's a, it affects our climate. Um, it, it affects the, the, the way that our cities are laid out, it, you know, the suburbs versus urban environments. And we really need to get away from car dependency. So it's, it's just kind of interesting that, like, you know, my grandmother growing up in this Arab country with, without a driver's license comes here learns learns public transportation, which she didn't even have in Jordan. And she instills that into me. And that has had a major impact on my life. So it's, it's just interesting as well. Wow, that is amazing. And it makes me think of my dad's mindset. He likes, he's very pro car. He's like, you have to get a car in this country. Everybody has to drive. Everybody has a car in this country. So he's like really like pushing that onto my sister, who's like, she has no interest in driving at all for safety reasons. Sure. And um, well, I was telling you earlier about I was in Ivory Coast and public transportation. I don't. I feel weird saying public transportation, but it's um, these vans that are made out to carry people and trans. I guess it is public transportation. But thinking about public transportation here and there, it's really different. But it's really rare for people to drive and like own their cars and drive around. It's like you have to be really wealthy to do that so taxis are everywhere there's buses there's what we call a baka it's like a minivan that just transport people to different stops and that's like the main transportation over there and i guess in america everyone has a car that's what my dad sees and that's what my dad wants for everyone do you think that that kind of an environment um 
makes uh, people closer in the, in the Ivory Coast. Like there's more of a community because there people are, tra- I mean, they're traveling together, yeah. right? I mean, and it's, it, okay, put, put aside the Uber, Uber elite that own their cars right. and that are only using their cars to get around. But everybody else, like, do you feel like that that has a, has a positive impact on, on the togetherness, the, the feeling that, you know, people, you know, are, they're closer to each other? Mm-hmm. I think it does. That's a good point. That's a good question. I think it does because you're, I guess, even as like a, a visitor going there, like you're more immersed in the culture and you're immersed with the people who are sitting next to strangers who are of the same background as you. And even though you don't talk to them, I think it's cool. Like you're not in your own car driving. You're not like independent or by yourself. You're interacting with people, sharing the language. I think it does for more of a community, even like talking to the taxi driver and making those connections with people. So I think I, I, I would say so. Yeah. When I, um, when I was in law school, I went to law school in DC and didn't have a car when I was in DC, used public transportation, would walk everywhere, take taxis. And then my first legal job, um, Georgetown had this program where they would send their first year students like o- overseas. And I, and I got a job in Mexico city and it was fantastic. Uh, where I, where I lived was several miles away from, from, from the law firm that I worked at. And I would have to take the, the two major streets in, um, in, in Mexico city, it's Insurgentes. And I, f- I forgot the other one. I think it's Revolucion, I, I think. And so I would take two buses every single day. I mean, and I, it was funny because the buses, some of the, some of the buses were these little minivans and I was extremely tall and mm-hmm. like the back of my head would like touch some of the minivan. Cause it was like standing room only, mm-hmm. but I was immersed and, and my Spanish was fantastic back then because I was using the bus going to and from work and I, my, my Spanish is terrible now. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very basic. I mean, back then it was, fan, it was, it was, it was like perfect. Mm-hmm. And that was because that whole summer I, I was using the bus to get around. I was, I was with everybody. It was great. It truly is being immersed in people, you know, the car, it does separate you from, right. from everybody else. Don't get me wrong. Cars, especially the way that our cities are laid out um, now um, in particular on the West coast versus, you know, places in the East coast, you do, you do need to have a car. Like I'm, I'm not sitting here saying I don't have a car. I definitely have a car. I mean, I got two little kids. It's very difficult to have two little kids and not have a car. And what you said about interacting with um, when you're in Mexico city, I remember when I had to take the public transportation in Ivory Coast by myself and my French isn't the best either. So I was really nervous about telling them like where we're going or where to get off. But somehow I managed to do it without them questioning where I'm from or like what my, what accent I have. So it's cool. It's a, it's like a learning experience and you get to really know the country that you're in and the people. hundred percent. It's the only way to do it. If you're going to go to a country and if you really want to learn a foreign language, do mm-hmm. not drive a car. True. Just don't. So long as you feel safe, using whatever the transportation is and you've figured the safest way around it. Right. That's, that's the way to learn language is to just get on the bus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I love that. It's really true. So you said you were born in LA and you were there in like the eighties, nineties. Yeah. I was born in downtown LA and then orange County, which is this, if you know anything about um, um, Southern California, like it's, it's just this, this is a very interesting small pocket of area used to be called um, living behind the orange curtain because it was this used to be this hardcore Republican um, o- oasis. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not dinging uh, Republicans or Democrats. I'm just saying it, it just had this very hardcore conservative uh, reputation, hmm. uh, especially back then. It's not, not so much like that anymore. So they used to call, call it living behind the orange curtain because it was, it was just this 
strange place to kind of uh, versus Los Angeles. It was just so much, it was it used to be so, so different than Los Angeles. It's, it is like these, just these suburbs. Like when you think mm-hmm. of suburbs, like in a movie, like that's what Orange County right. was. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm over here in the East coast. I don't know how to picture, like what were the demographics like growing up in LA or Southern? Good LA? question. Uh, primarily white. Right. A very, 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 very white. <laughs> very white. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting down anything. I'm just, you know, growing up, it was, everybody was white. Right. Now it's a lot more diverse. Could it be, could it be more diverse? Absolutely. It, it could be, it should be more diverse, but it's a lot different now than what it was 40 years ago when I was like a baby. It, I mean, if you go and you look at some of the, you know, the historical background into Orange County, you know, when you ever hear the terms white flight, uh, they, the Orange County is one of those places. That's where people had left the urban areas and, 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 and went and built these suburbs with these big tract homes and, and they're away from everybody. And, and everybody has a car because the public transportation sucks or there isn't any public transportation. And you right. kind of live in these little boxes, which had a very interesting impact. And that's one of the reasons why Orange County was one of the centers of, of punk rock in the late 70s, early 80s, and the early 1990s. It was because it was a bunch of bored teenagers sick of the suburban lifestyle and their non-interaction with people were just pissed off. And they were like, I don't want to live in these box, boxy places and, and be separated from people. I, I want to I want to be around people and be in these intimate clubs and listen to some music and be pissed off. And so that also had an impact on punk rock and the punk rock bands that came out of Orange County, which were some of the greatest ones ever. These days, there's there's a number of Middle Eastern people living in Orange County now, Asian Americans, Latinos, um, the African-American population is, is finally getting some numbers underneath them there. But when I was growing up, it was primarily white. Wow. So I'm just connecting these dots, how teenagers in the suburbs, punk rock law, and how you actually, it sounds like you actually could relate to them, even though you weren't a white person in the suburbs. So can you tell me about how, what were you angry about? What were you facing as a, what was your upbringing like? My upbringing was was interesting. Um, My first language was Arabic. And then at some point, and my mom tells me I used to speak Arabic very well. At some point I said, I just stopped. It was like, you know, no Arabic, no, no more um, as, as a child. And I actually specifically remember telling my parents that they, that they are not allowed to speak Arabic in public. And that was during the Gulf War, August 1990 to 1991, because I was scared. I was mm-hmm. really scared. It was a very scary, it was very scary being an Arab at, at that time. Because mm-hmm. you were, I mean, it was back then you used to drive, you, you drive around your car and there used to be bumper stickers on cars with a, with a bullseye, you know, with a, with an Arab person on a camel. And it would say, I'm going to smoke me some camels, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just this, it was this America hadn't been to war in a long time. And the last war that they were in uh, was in Vietnam and it was terrible. Like people were bloodthirsty. They mm-hmm. wanted to, they wanted to kill some, some Arabs. Um, and so I started telling my parents, you're not allowed to speak Arabic in public. And of course I felt guilty about that for the rest of my life. I mean, it's just one of those things, but I was 13 years old. What what was I supposed to, I was a scared kid. You know, here I am as, as a child, I'm growing Some of the earliest memories that I have are of the civil war in Lebanon and just whenever hearing the word Arab, it was always terrorist. So, you know, you could interchange the two 
there. And, you know, my parents are speaking Arabic. I used to speak Arabic. And, and so I would equate, you know, my upbringing with terrorism because that's all what I would see on, on television. Mm-hmm. And that's all that I would read about on the magazines. Or there were, like I said, there were no heroes. There were no good Arabs. It was just all bad. And that has a major, major impact on you. So I tried to make myself look as white as humanly possible. I just did. I mean, I just wanted to, I wanted to fit in and not be bothered. And, and I used to, it was just funny. I I used to be like really dark when I was like a a kid and somehow like my skin kind of lightened up um, as I got older. And um, I used to have a lot of breathing problems, uh, deviated septums and everything. Uh, you know, I, I actually wound up getting a nose surgery in, um, in when I was, uh, uh, in high school, um, cause I needed it and they wound up making my nose look a little less ethnic. Right, and right. I just kind of, I just kind of blended right in and it, oh. and that was fine. It was just easy. It was just easier to look and live white than it, than, than, than otherwise. And at, my parents specifically named me Rudy. Um, we didn't have Arabic names because you know, my parents had faced some discrimination. And so they, they didn't, they didn't want us to grow up with that. Uh, our last name um, used to be my dad's middle name, which is Saliba. Many hundreds of years ago, it, it, our last name used to be Saliba. Somehow it became Salo. Salo sounds Italian or Spanish. Right. So I was able to just kind of fit right in. And that is both good and bad. Cause sometimes when people think that you're, you're white, you hear things you hear some, you do hear some racist, not, not from my friends. My, none of my friends growing up were racist in any way, shape or form. Sometimes if you're riding in a taxi or if you're around other people, you hear things that like, maybe you wouldn't hear if you, if they, if they thought that you were, that you weren't white, you know? And so in a way it's like, wow, I like, I really do have, have, or seen or experienced what real racism is because I've been quote unquote on the other side and like seen and heard what people really think. And it's terrible. Yeah. That's a scary thing. Cause then it's like, there's no filter. You're there. The truth is out. And it's like, wow, this is what they really, that's it's scary, but it's hundred percent. Yeah. Like you said, it's good and bad. Like now, you know, but it's like, you wish you didn't know. That's correct. Yeah. So you like really just naturally fit in with your white peers and white people are passing as white pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at my name. I'm a Christian. Yeah. I don't speak with any accents. I was born here. I mean, I love punk rock. I love science fiction. I mean, I'm a nerd, you know, I love horror films. I love heavy growing up. I loved heavy metal. I was, I was just like everybody else. And that that was fine. You know, like I said, you know, all my friends knew what I was, they didn't care. And it was just the, just being around the, the other elements and here and hearing just I've seen and heard some things that, I'm not sure it was good for me to hear or if it was good for me because I can I can attest to like, oh, yeah, no, there's some really racist people out there. Like, right. they, like their true feelings are, you know, racist because I, they, they felt comfortable enough when they when they thought they were just around their people to, mm-hmm. to say things that they really shouldn't have. Well, exactly. It's a word balance. I, I want to say it's a positive. Not that they said that, but to know that it's confirmed people are racist. It's not like a made up thing. Not, not everybody. In fact, most people are, are, are the vast majority of people are, are fantastic. Right. They, they just are like, I, I, I am somebody that still believes in pe- people are good until, until, you know, trust people until yeah. there's a reason not to, mm-hmm. and that's gotten me into trouble in the past, but that's my default. 
but but yeah, there are some bad people out there, and you just got You just got to be careful. Right. Exactly. How did these stereotypes or things you've heard surrounding Arab Americans or Arabs in general impact the way you perceive yourself? And how how was that? Like, how did you now see yourself? Now or growing up? Both, like growing up, and then we can talk about now as well. Yeah, growing up, I I hated it. I hated being Arab American. I just wanted to be a white kid. You know, um, like I said, the Gulf War, the you know, the eighties uh, was terrible. Every movie had any kind of an Arab in it was always a terrorist. And then the Gulf War happened. It got to the point where I just started lying to people and just saying I was Italian. I'm like, why not? You know, I was I was clearly a weak kid. Uh, I, I felt like lying would make my life easier. I didn't have the confidence in myself because of all of this negativity. So I just, I was like, well, I got to get through life. And, and so sometimes I would lie and say I was Italian. I get to college And once I get to college and I'm able to really learn history and really learn about the Middle East and really learn about, you know, what was going on in the world and like peeling back the onions, the pieces of the onion and and getting deep involved into Middle Eastern international relations and truly educating myself. I mean, I flipped. And then I was very proud of my Arab American heritage. And I, and I started taking Arabic classes. And, and I, after law school, I went and traveled to the Middle East and was, was very proud of it. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a perfect place. And there's always been problems uh, there and there always will be some problems there, but you know what, the rest of the world's got their problems too. I mean, I, I'm actually kind of hopeful uh, to be honest with you uh, about the, the, the future uh, of it. I mean, if you learn history and you, and you really go back and you learn about the, the, the crazy, terrible things that, the, that happened in Europe, uh, and the murders, you know, I mean, the Inquisition and, and the way that they've, tr- they've treated the Jews in the past and, the, and all these terrible, terrible things that, that they've done, you know, uh, yeah, there's been some, there's some problems in the, in the Middle East and they're going through some, some terrible times right now, but you have to be hopeful for, okay, every society, every culture goes through this. Eventually, th- they'll get through this and, and things will, you know, won't, won't be as bad, if you know what I mean. Uh, so learning history it taught me to be hopeful for for the future of the Middle East and to kind of be proud and accepting of of, of who I am. Well, the way like just hearing you say all those things made made me think of how similar the first generation and second generation, the kinship and the that experience of the shame we have early on either wanting to be white, lying about our backgrounds. It sounds yep. just so familiar and it makes me really like sad, but it's like, dang, it's everybody. Like it's all of us. It is. I, I swear to you that, that, that movie that I wrote, which almost got made and there was a whole bunch of issues. It's, mm. it's called white like me. That's it. That's, that's the, that's the, that's the whole premise of it. It's about, it's about being a first generation immigrant uh, wanting to just fit in and like not bother with being the other. Right. And then, and then, of course, you know, the spoiler alert, the, the character eventually is proud of being the other. Yeah, I do. I, of course, that happened in, in, in the script. I mean, Jesus, it should happen. But that's what I mean. I wrote I mean, I spent years writing on that and, and working it. I'm still proud of it. I have no idea what will ever happen with it. But I'm like, I couldn't be more proud that I that I wrote a movie that a producer actually w- wanted. And we even had a director and possible investor. And yeah, it just 
just didn't work out, you know, COVID. But I, I still believe in that story very, very, yes, it's based upon my life, but it's not just based upon my life because I took elements of my, of my, of my friends that I grew up with that were African-American and wrote that into this. In fact, I had one of my African-American fr- friends, like, you know, give me a couple of tidbits on, no, you need to do this. You need to do that. Asian-Americans, even, even some of my white, white friends. I mean, they had a direct influence uh, on me for that. And one of my friends who was a homosexual that, uh, you know, came out in, in high school that that's touched upon in there as well. Um, all of these things are in there and yeah, you know, hopefully someday that, something will turn out from it. You know, I, I really, I, I have high hopes that uh, that's like, hearing what you just said. I was like, Oh, you could totally relate to this movie. Like uh, anybody who's a first generation or second generation American w- would be like, Hey, this is the movie about us. Absolutely. This is about, this is who, this is who this, this dude wrote, wrote this movie kind of about his life, but he was thinking about us when, 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 when he wrote this. And I was because at that story, that unique little immigrant feeling that, that, that you had when I was talking, we all have that. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us has that. And those stories need to be out there. Those unique stories should be out there, in my opinion. There's not enough of that today. And I love what I do. Is, is I really do. I, I mean, I, like I said, I think it's very impactful, but I do want to do more. Uh, that's why I do the acting. That's why I do the writing, because our stories need to be out there. And it may take decades uh, to get them out there, but I'm, I'm going to work my butt off to make sure that they're out there, you know, and that's why you, podcasts like this are fantastic. And, you know, it's so great that, that, that you, that you have, oper- that you have something like this for, for people like me to, 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 to put our voice out there. So I'm really passionate about this stuff and I'm passionate, not just for me, but it's for anybody that's a first or second generation American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like a lot of pride in that, even though we, we all have the experience of not being prideful and I'm trying to put these stories out there because my um, roommate was also first generation. And I was like, wow, we have similar experiences. This must be true for a lot of people. So let's, I just wanted to, I don't know. It's, you have these stories, you have these experiences, you have these people and we all share this thing. What do we do about it? And how do we, like, what is, what is going to come out of it? We don't know, but just hearing these things and relating to each other as different as we are, we are really similar in a lot of ways. 100%. 100%. I couldn't agree more. That's why I, I when I whenever I meet anybody that that is uh that could relate to the to the first generation story it's like hmm, I already have a 1 million things in common with this person. Right. Like let, let's see if let, let let's find out all the all the things that we have in common, you know. It's yeah. uh it's great. I, I loved hearing. I loved hearing that you about your dad. Uh, you know, the, trying to get your sister about the car and mm-hmm. and like how important the car is. And now you can go back to your dad and say, you know, Dad, you, know, you should really listen to this podcast episode with this guy that I was just talking to. Who, you know, he thinks that it's important that we learn not to rely upon the car. So I, I it's it's just cool. It's just it's funny to hear these things. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to connect. It is. But you did mention a lot about growing up in the 80s and 90s and I'm not familiar with that because I was born in the late 90s so as far as the stereotypes or things that I've what I know about terrorism and those stereotypes and brainwashing and propaganda it's all post 9-11 for me so for you being on both ends like how was that post 9-11? Great question uh first of all growing up in the 80s was I'm gonna put aside put aside the fact that I was I was an Arab American if you weren't an Arab American, growing up in the 80s was 
was pretty awesome. Like the music was awesome. The movies were awesome. There was only one, you know, enemy per se. It was Russia, you know, and Reagan was going to, you know, mm -hmm. stop them because they were the evil empire. And it's just like things made sense. They were a little bit simpler, uh, especially if you were white. Oh, my God. Oh, if you yeah. were white in the 80s. Oh, man. You, I mean. Living the life. <laughs> whoa, what a great, you know, here I was wanting to be white growing up in Orange County. I, I kind of got a, a taste of it. It was great. I still only pretty much listen to 80s and 90s. 9-11 was, I mean, it's so funny because right when you get into the 90s, it's the Gulf War. And then, you know, that sucked for a very, very long time. And then towards the late 90s, Al-Qaeda starts to come come around, mm -hmm. and, you know, because they, bom they, they bombed Tanzania and, uh, and, and other parts of the world. And then, and, you know, the true, you know. The Soviet Union falls, and then our next enemy is are these international terrorist groups after Iraq falls and everything. Uh, so it, it just became weird. Like it became really weird into the into the 1990s uh, because terrorism was look. It wasn't like it was made up. Like there is terrorism. <laughs> like there's it's just it's just whether or not how you associate yourself with that, right? Like it you don't want everybody to automatically assume just because when you say you're Arab that they think you're that they're scared of you. Mm -hmm. But I've seen it. When I've, when I've told people I'm Arab, I've seen like a little thing in their eye. That's what used to happen in the 80s and 90s. Wow. And then 9-11 happened. I was actually in D.C. I mean, I actually was there. Uh, I had to escape out of the city because they, they the, that other plane that eventually went down in um, Pennsylvania was still out there because it was heading towards the capital. So we, we had to it got on the subway, got, got out of the city. It was very, very scary. OK, so so that was a very scary time. And then we, you know, there was the next Iraq war, but something started to change. Like, and I think it was because of the internet and then social media, you know, for the vast majority of people, it just stopped being okay to associate Arabs with terrorists. And I still remember, you know, in 2005, 2006, hearing the, the, the hearing the racist things, hearing the anti-Arabic things that started to dissipate in, in the, in the late 2000s, um, 2010. And maybe, maybe that started to dissipate because I started identifying as him. I no longer lied about being, about being white. Right. I was just like, no, I'm an Arab. So I, it's almost, it's strange. Like I, I stopped like hearing bad things when I started identifying and being prouder of, of, of my Arab American heritage. Do I still think there's some racist people out there? Absolutely. Of course there is, but uh, I don't want to associate. With them. Mm -hmm. Fine. I, you know, I, I don't want to be around them anymore, but these days, with the likes of, you know, Rami Youssef and, and Rami Malik and, and all these Arab Americans coming up and, and being great artists and giving an, a different voice. It's, it's awesome. It, it's way better. And I've talked to second generation Arab Americans that like you, that were born in the late 1990s, barely remember nine 11. And they, they do feel the otherness, but they're just like, they, they don't feel it as, as the way I do because of what, because of the 90s mm -hmm. and the 80s, I mean, there were it, it was just tons of movies with terrorists there. And, and forget about that. Just whenever you would turn on the TV, you'd hear about these hijacking. I mean, terrible things that were happening, like legitimately happening. Not, in the movies, it was all, you know, it was just a lot of negative portrayals. But there were some horrible things that were happening. And, and as a child, when, you, when you're hearing your parents speak the language of, of these same people that you're always seeing on TV that are, that are dressed up as terrorists. It's very hard with our young, not very bright brains to, to, to separate the two. Right. Like you, it, it takes a long time to learn how to do that. Oh, so it's making me think, and I wonder what that 
with that switch was in the you said early like mid or 2000s early 2000s once you were more proud of your heritage and then you stopped stopped hearing negative things you know and and you know what you know what else happened it was it was fascinating i remember being a kid and everybody making fun of the arabic food that i would bring to school i'd bring hummus i would bring zatad i would bring all this stuff and people you say oh you're eating bird seeds and blah 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 Everywhere you look now, I mean, you can go to any restaurant and there's hummus and zatar. I mean, Arabic food is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and so that's a part of the switch. It's Mm -hmm. this, oh my God, I love Arabic food. Oh my God, I love Mediterranean food. Oh, 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 I, you know, oh gosh, this this comedian is, this Arab comedian is so funny. Or, oh, that actor is so great. That's why it's important to have, Mm -hmm. you know, more uh, Middle Easterners just be a part of everyday society, you know, Mm -hmm. so so people can, so the fear can drop. Yeah, and w- once they start liking things like your food, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it's huge. That 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 dissipates the fear and just kind of gets people to kind of tone down yeah, the, the the negativity towards you. So there was this. I, I do. I mean, I think the huge of the. I think in starting in the late two thousands, you just started seeing Arabic food everywhere. You're right. I, I think that I really do kebab restaurants yeah. and, and 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 falafel everywhere. I mean, it's 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 fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a great, great thing. But when I was growing up, you couldn't find that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, unless your mother or your grandmother made it for you. That was it. You couldn't find it anywhere. Now you can find it anywhere you want. Wow. And, and I do think that the food component to it is huge. I do. I, I think food has a huge impact on people's impression of other people. Oh, absolutely. I love Mediterranean food. I do. That's the greatest food I, on earth. That's I, yeah. <laughs> I, I will Period. argue that. I don't. I'm proud of that. A hundred percent. It is the greatest food on earth. And I feel it's very healthy too. It like is. I, I love Ivorian food, but I, I, I might agree with you on that one. Like, <laughs> I, might have well, I haven't, I haven't had Ivorian food. I'd love to try some. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to find an Ivorian restaurant in Southern California and I will go there and I'll let you know what I think about it. But it, Mediterranean food is still the best period. Okay. <laughs> but if you do find an Ivorian, just let me know. There's none. Anywhere. I will. I will. Okay. I'd be happy to. Yeah. I haven't had an, I haven't had a lot of food from um, Africa. I, I've, I've eaten Ethiopian. I mean, I think a lot, of, I think everybody's eaten Ethiopian food before. It's completely on the, on another side of the, of the, of the continent. And I'm trying to think if I've ever, I'm, I've never even been to like a South African restaurant before. Yeah. What, what I'm just curious, what, what is the most well-known dish or thing about uh, in Ivarian cuisine? Our main thing like specific to Ivory Coast is acheke, which is like ground cassava. So it okay. looks like it looks like couscous, but it's cassava. And that with like grilled fish, grilled chicken, uh fried. My mouth plantains. is watering. Yeah. It's like new it's like noon lunchtime here and it's making <laughs> oh, me hungry. Right. Yeah, but there's there's West African restaurants, but there's no I feel like they're never specific enough. Okay. It's okay, always good to like know. a blend. So I don't know. I've never found an Ivorian restaurant. So I should find a West African restaurant. That's where I should go. And I should try to see if I could find something specific to the Ivory Coast on that menu. Yeah. But okay. actually, I don't know. I don't think they serve them in restaurants. It'll be hard to find. Like, I can only get it at home if my mom finds a guy who sells it and then she makes it. So that's great. That's fantastic. It's a challenge. <laughs> it is. But isn't food, isn't, food, isn't food from a different part of the world just the best? Yeah. Isn't it just a great thing to talk about? It honestly, could go on, on and on about food. I mean, who hates food, right? We all it, eat it. We all need it. <laughs> I, I try not to talk 
um, about things that are, I try to avoid talking about politics. I try to, I, I actually try to avoid mostly talking about race or the religion or any type of stuff like that on our podcast on good as in the deep. Mm. We do talk a lot about those things, but we always try to take a very middle ground. We try not to overly express our opinions. Right. Would I try the things that I do try to talk about kind of incessantly are things that everyone in the world hates traffic. Like mm-hmm. who in the world likes traffic? Nobody likes traffic. So I'm like, okay, well, I could, I could talk about that a lot and not anger anybody on this side or on that right. side. And then there's food, right? Everybody likes food. Like mm-hmm. I, who, who wouldn't want to try some good food from a different part of the world? You know, I, everybody is willing to do that because you know, f- food, food's just important. You know, if you could, if you could find those little middle grounds with people, I think it's, I think it's huge. I think that's, I think that's a, the easiest, best way to bring two sides to a table is to, is, is to start with some food, mm-hmm. in my opinion. You're right. Especially if they're two different cultures, trying a completely different culture's food as well. Absolutely. Like it's a new experience for both of them. hundred percent. You're right. But there are people out there who don't like trying new foods. There, there are, there are, and that'll, that'll tell you some things about those people. You know, they're probably the same type of people that don't like to travel. They're probably the same type of people that don't like to experience different cultures. They're probably the same type of people that are very narrow minded. Mm-hmm. So that, that'll tell you something in my opinion. That, you're right. And then already, if you know that, then it's like, maybe, maybe we can <laughs> not be friends or something. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being acquaintances with those people. Great. Exactly. You mentioned traveling. Have you, have you been to Jordan before? Yeah. Three times. Oh, well. and the majority of your family is over there. Majority of my family has left and come over here. Oh, okay. um, in fact, I have an uncle that's trying to come over here right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's trying to sell his house and we're trying to help him, you know, settle over here in the United States and his sons are already here. I mean, it's a bad situation over there. It's, it's, it's very, very bad, right. but uh, it wasn't always like that. Um, when I was visiting in the tooth in the early to in the mid two thousands. I went in 2005, 2008 and 2012. It was great. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I went to, went to Jordan. I also went to Qatar, I've been to Jordan, Qatar and Lebanon. Oh, there's a huge Lebanese presence in Ivory coast. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah they, the Lebanon, there's way more Lebanese people scattered throughout the world than there mm-hmm. is in actual Lebanon itself. And that's a bad situation there as well. Mm-hmm. I do still have some family in Lebanon too. Because mm-hmm. my mom, my mom's family is actually, well, she was born in Jordan. They're actually originally from Lebanon. So there's a, there's a fair amount of uh, Lebanese uh, relatives that I have. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully your uncle can come over. We're trying our best. We're doing everything that we can do. Yeah. That'd be good. And honestly, I was doing a little like research to prepare for this interview and I didn't know, I don't know, this just went over my head, Arab American Heritage Month. Yeah, it's in April, in fact. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah it's, uh, I don't know how official it is. I know in California, we, I think we passed a resolution like two or three years ago wow. for like Arab American Month uh, happening in April. And I think I think at the State Department or even at the federal level, they do recognize it. So yeah, we do it. We have a month, which is which is pretty cool. So yeah. uh, every every month in April, I usually like pump out an article uh, about it and what it actually means to me. And I kind of tie you know 
the story that I've kind of laid out here about the shame I had growing up. And now like, look at all these things there are to be proud of. And mm-hmm. that, that month means a lot. It really does. Yeah. I don't think I, that was ever like shared in schools or like in any. I think it's a relatively new thing. I new do. Thing? I re- yeah. I really think it's like a thing that's, that started to get its legs underneath it in the last two to three years, maybe five years. Oh, wow. To, to, don't, I'm not surprised that you didn't learn about it growing up because I didn't either. I mean, right. I, I only really heard about it like in like 2018. Oh, okay. So I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're fine. Okay. I was like, I, I'm not, as an Arab American, I'm not offended. You're totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Oh yeah. I was thinking of how you said in the 2000s, you weren't hearing as many bad things about Arab Americans. I wonder if that's related to... Like there's always a target. There's always an other tar- being targeted. So maybe there's an uprising, another group. And then well, I, I definitely, I heard things between two, I, I definitely after 9-11 until about 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. I heard horrible things, oh, yeah. especially like in, in like taxis and people were thinking I was white. The things that mm-hmm. I had heard were absolutely awful. I feel like it was starting in the late 2000s with shockingly with like the rise of social media and, and and the and the um, the food like really getting into the, the culture I, I I think I started to hear less negative things but at the same time that was also the time when I was like I don't know coming out of the Arab closet more mm-hmm. and was just like no I'm an Arab like that's what I am I'm Arab American you know forget it I'm not you know this is this is who I am I'm not lying about this anymore and that could also be another reason why I don't hear um, a lot of negative things either but there's also, you know, more Arab Americans on TV, more Arab Americans in movies. And, and so it just that definitely started to happen in the late 2000s. I mm-hmm. definitely I definitely think so. Were you able to like form a community of with friends who looked like you and people as you got older? Yes. Uh, in fact, with the Arab American Lawyers Association, mm-hmm. I definitely have. Um, we are a pretty tight knit group uh, here in Southern California. Um that's why I'm, I'm proud to be a, a vice president uh, um, of, of the organization. We, we, we definitely have a tight group. Uh, we try to help each other out uh, 100%. And it, it's, it's, it's fascinating because it's like, we don't just have Arab Americans as a part of the organization. We have, we have other people as well. And people of all religions being, being a part of our, um, our network and um, our, our events. So it's, it's really great. It's really, um, it's really open um, uh network of, uh, of the, of an association. So yeah, it's worked out very well. Um, I feel like we've, we've found common cause and being attorneys, we, we do want to have positive impacts on society and we want people to view us more positive. And, and that's why I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of that. Organization. Yeah. That sounds awesome. And you're the vice president. So that's really cool. You have power in that. Yeah. yeah. Power. That's <laughs> It's it's mostly just like oh well how much work can how much more things can I take on at this particular time but but I do I do agree that our mission is mm-hmm. that's awesome. Well, you did mention you have kids. I wonder what messages or as far as like identity and ethnicity and heritage and pride in that. How do you associate that with your kids, or what are you like teaching them? They're, you know, my kids are, they, my kids just look like white kids. Cause my wife is, uh, she's, she's part, um, Russian, Ukrainian. And then the other part is, um, Swiss Irish. Oh. So, um, the, my, uh, my, my kids are 
you know, they're, they're half Arabic and then half, you know, white and, uh, but they, but they look white. They look even whiter than I do, mm. but they're, they're, they, I mean, my, my mother speaks to them in Arabic. And mm. so they know a couple of words and, and they're familiar with the food and, and at some point in the future, um, I'll probably teach them the history and God willing someday, it'll be safe enough to take them over to Jordan or some of the other countries and show them where, you know, my side of the family came from. But no, they will. They will know that they're that they are Arabic growing up, 100. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm. They, they're, they. I can already see that they're not going to be. They're not going to have. They're not going to see the same negative things that I saw um, when I turned on the news or turned everything on TV. Things have changed. Right. They just have, and, and they've changed for the better. And so I think my kids are going to benefit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel like. Nowadays, it's more people are more open minded, or at least more aware of things. A hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, you know, big believer in diversity and inclusion. My law firm is big on that. Mm-hmm. We're probably one of the first law firms in the, in the world to have a, a dedicated diversity officer, and so it's fantastic. You know, um, it's just better these days. It, if you if you're if you're quote unquote different, whatever that means anymore, right. it's okay. Like it's you're you're. It's way better to be what would be different in the 80s and 90s. It's way better to be different today than it was back then. That that that's that is the message I will tell to to anybody that's out there. Is there a lot of room for improvement? Absolutely. Are there still a lot of problems and racism? Oh, 100%. Don't don't get me wrong, but it's better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I guess that answers the last question. Like, what are you leaving the listeners with? What is your message to put out there? I would say, you know, for for the listeners, um, there there are people out there like me and like you that our stories are important and they will be told. And one, whether it's my story or somebody else's story, these are great stories. These are really interesting stories. And there are more people out there that are others than like, you know, non-others these days. And we're allies. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter if I'm Arab American or if you're African American or if you're this or you're that. We're all allies and we need to help each other out and we need to get our stories out there and we need to talk to each other and then you tell me your story and then I can go tell somebody else your story and, and et cetera, et cetera, and spread this out there. That'll just make the world a better place. So what I would tell listeners is keep listening to other people's stories. I love that. There's so there's such power in storytelling and sharing your story. And that's that's how we communicate, sharing stories and learning from the, the that message. Yeah. Hundred percent. And if people, you know, if people want more, if people like me or the message that I have, you know, go check out Good Is in the Details podcast. You know, we we talk a lot about this stuff um, and other and other interesting things. Talk about philosophy, law. Uh, we put out shows like once, uh, like twice a month. Um, it's a great show. If 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 what I'm saying sounds interesting. I hope your listeners take a listen to a couple of episodes. Oh, absolutely. Check out Good Is In The Details podcast, and I'll put your socials out there. Please do. So on Instagram, you can follow Rudy at RudySS77. Oh, that's your birth year. It is. Right. Yeah. Okay. I just connected that. It's my, it's my name. It's my middle my middle initial and my initial of my last name and then my birth year. Right. RudySS77. Okay. And on Twitter, Rudy. S-A-L-O-R-U-D-Y. Correct. All right. And if anybody out there wants to read anything that I've written on Forbes, all they would just type in is Rudy Sallow Forbes, and then a whole bunch of articles will pop up. 
Right. I did do that. I saw a bunch of things on transportation and now I know why. <laughs> that That's why. Right. Infrastructure. Perfect. Big thank you for this. Oh, yeah. Thank you for putting work into this. Um, it, it's These stories are important. Your story is important. Our stories are important. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for reaching out and for being on and for putting your story out there. It was great to hear from you. Great to hear your side, your story and your experiences. It's an honor. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Enjoy the rest of your day. It's still you too. Well, it's still early for you. I'm like, it is. It's lunchtime. I, I wish I could. I wish I could find a West African restaurant around me, but I, uh, I'll probably just eat some ramen downstairs in my, in my <laughs> work from home office. Oh boy! Enjoy <laughs> your ramen and let me know. I will. I will. Thank you very much. No problem. Take right. care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Hope to catch you in the next episode. Be sure to follow Americanize on Instagram. All original music was produced by Stubborn Saul. Be sure to check him out on all music listening platforms at S-T-B-R-N-S-A-L. Peace out.